Brethren, I am grateful to see those of you here in attendance. I pray that God would bless, encourage, and strengthen each one of you today. We have many that are sick, some that are out of town. I do pray that we will pass through this season without multiple sicknesses, if it would please the Lord. But we certainly should be praying for one another. <clears throat> if you have a cell phone, please check it now and make sure that it is on mute. <clears throat> I think everyone here knows what to do if you have a little one that needs to be quieted. We thank the Lord for Jenny Grace Maxson. We are delighted beyond words that the Lord has given us another olive plant. And uh, the tribe of Maxson continues to expand. I'm very thankful. Perhaps nation is the better word. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, um, we're delighted that everything went well with the delivery. Baby is safe. Uh, mom's doing well. So let's continue to pray for them. A brand new chapter has opened, and uh, <clears throat> that certainly is a great blessing to us here. <clears throat> I have been in congregations, if I might share something personal, I have been in modern congregations that do not rejoice when they hear another child is coming. They're either quiet or they make some um, worldly comment like, don't they know how this happens? Another one? <clears throat> it is delightful to be among God's people who welcome and actively pursue God's commandment in bringing children, his image bearers, into this world. I'm thankful that many have grown up here not knowing another culture as far as life goes. That we welcome, we rejoice. Uh, just your response to my announcement says so much. Uh, I pray with all of my heart that our children will go out with that same desire, that they will hope and seek the Lord's face to be able to bring children into this world, to bring God's image bearers into this world, and to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is a part of God's dominion. It is a part of man's dominion. That is why there is such a war against babies. Yeah. Abortion continues in various ways in our nation. We should continue to pray and do what we can to see that terrible holocaust come to an end. <clears throat> One of them is joyfully having children. Oh. May the Lord grant us many more. The biggest season we ever had was eight within a few months. 
been a while since we've had that many. But we delighted in all eight. Well, if you would uh, please open your Bibles to Hebrews. Today we're going to do something that we cannot do all the way through Hebrews, or we would be here probably for a couple of decades. We want to get behind the quotation that's been given to us in chapter 1, verse 5. Why, why did the author of Hebrews choose that particular two verses that we'll look at, those two verses. Why? And what are those, what's the background of those? What do they have to do with what the argument of Hebrews is? Very often, uh, it's not unusual for the Lord's people to read a um, quotation from the Old Testament and not realize it's a quotation. Uh, Sometimes they realize it's a quotation, but they don't go back and look at that quotation, where it came from, and then ask, why did it come from there? <clears throat> and even when we go uh, to some of those passages, we're stumped because it is confusing sometimes to understand why they chose a particular verse. Did they have the liberty to just yank a piece out and say, well, this will serve my purpose, so I'm going to use this. Sounds like what I want to say, but not what they did. These men carefully studied and exegeted the scriptures and used them according to what they learned by God's Holy Spirit. They dug into God's word and began to realize that Christ is to be found throughout the Old Testament scriptures. They knew that Messiah was coming, but that's not the same as the treatment that we see in the, new, in the New Covenant where so many passages are brought and set before New Covenant believers. Why? Because that was their Bible. The New Testament wasn't available at that time. There were letters beginning to pass uh, around from church to church, but it was the book from which Paul preached. It's the book from the, the, the letter of the Hebrews arises from. It's the book that Peter and John and others used to preach Christ. You can even see it in the book of Acts. So the, the use of the Old Testament is an important thing. Uh, it's not just a dead covenant that has nothing whatsoever to do with us, True enough, the Old Testament is not our covenant, but the fact is that the scriptures of God are still the living, breathing words of God, and they had a purpose then, and they have a purpose to us now. So this will be a little different at certain moments today, but I hope that it will spark at least an interest in all, uh, if some, in some, if not all, of us to think about why they, uh, the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament so frequently and how it is that they go to the passages that they do. 
Sometimes it's pretty clear. Sometimes it's not clear at all. And uh, <clears throat> I hope that today will at least move you in the direction of thinking about it. That being said, we're going to read verses 4 through 14 of chapter 1 of Hebrews. If you would stand with me, we will read them. And I pray that God in his mercy will give us insight even as we read. The author is making an argument. And we want to grasp that argument as clearly as the Lord will let us. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. This is the word of God. Being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He now sets forth to prove that. And he's going to use the Old Testament scriptures to do that. <clears throat> For unto which the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they, meaning the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. Let's remain standing and unite our hearts before the throne of grace. Father, I do praise Thee. I praise the Father. I praise the Son. I praise the Holy Ghost. I thank Thee, Almighty God, that Thou hast revealed Thyself to us in this blessed Word, in creation and in Thy Son. Father, Thou, by Thy creative power, by the life force of the Holy Spirit, hath moved, hath breathed into the hearts of thy dear elect in this congregation 
and in every place throughout this world. Thou didst raise them from their darkness into the light of Christ. Thou didst transform them. Thou didst move them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of thy precious Son. And I thank thee, O God, that with new hearts and with the Holy Spirit, they are able to hear and understand and believe thy word. Father, truly, there are many passages that we continue to wrestle with, and the light has not fully come, certainly not to me. And Father, I know of, uh, of every good man, I know his own struggle is to understand the, the, the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of God's glorious revelation. Help us, O Lord, help us. We long to feed thy sheep with that which delights their souls. Father, we're not here to preach ourselves, but to preach Christ. We're not here simply to make ourselves feel better, whatever it is that we are facing. We are here to worship thee, to adore thee, to thank thee, to magnify thee, to glorify thy name, and to do so not only by singing and prayer and the hearing and preaching of thy word, but of the intense and holy love that thou hast shown us, that we might show it to one another. Now, O God, save the lost that are in our midst and encourage, build up thy precious blood-bought people. May Christ be evident in our midst and may love for him rise up as a kindled fire. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed to his fathers for his apostles. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Our Savior went on to pray, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. Now it's vital for us to understand that the word certainly contains the gospel the word being spoken of at this time is not a 66-book compilation. As we mentioned earlier, it is the Old Covenant Scriptures. So they were to be brought to a saving knowledge of Christ by the Old Testament Scriptures. They were to be sanctified by the Old Testament scriptures. They were to be made wise. They were to be built up in the faith by the Old Covenant scriptures. Now, this doesn't leave out what the apostles were going and preaching and teaching that would become the New Testament. Certainly, it applies to that. 
And as the letters circulated and as time went on, they had more access to the revelation of God, but it was not complete. But it was sufficient. It was enough for Christ to be exalted, for there even to be uh, argumentation, for there to be apologetics to defend the faith. <clears throat> so, not only was it for his apostles, but for those that would hear through their word. <clears throat> and that blessed truth is still available. Where do we find God's word of truth and the apostles' words? In the infallible, inscripturated word of God. We have the greater revelation than when that was prayed, as far as the application of what we find in the Gospels. Jesus was the very gospel being set before them. They, had a, they saw the glory of Christ, and they knew that it was the glory of God they saw. So, we look to the 66 books of the Spirit-breathed library called the Bible. Our Savior also said, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. When Christ, who is the truth, sends the spirit of truth to illuminate his people, by the word of truth, his people understand the truth. They love Jesus and his truth, and they are set apart to obey him by living in his truth. This is what Jesus prayed. We want to be the answers of it. We want the Lord to make us the answer to our Savior's prayer. Sanctify them by thy truth. But when perilous times come, some of God's people are tempted to fall away from God's holy, saving truth. That is the case with the readers of the letter to the Hebrews. In the, faith, in the face of coming persecution, some were fleeing to the safety of the Jews and the Old Covenant. The Jews had permission from the Roman Empire to practice their religion. The Christians did not. So it cost to follow Christ. That hasn't changed, but we don't know it very well here in this nation. On one hand, we can say, praise the Lord. <clears throat> On the other hand, we certainly need to be praying that God would prepare us in the event that that changes. So... <clears throat> The author of, the, of, of Hebrews saturates his sermonic letter with Old Covenant Scripture for New Covenant believers. 
Old Covenant scripture that reveals that Jesus is better than the prophets. Though we do not denigrate the prophets, we do not insult the prophets. But something better appeared. God in his mercy raised up his son, the living word. And this Jesus, better than the prophets, is better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than the Levitical priesthood and the rest that are listed here in this letter. And that's one of the signal words throughout this extraordinary work. Better, better. Better. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews begins by revealing that Jesus is so much better than the prophets. So much better than the angels. So our message is entitled, God's Son is Better Than the Angels, Part 2. May our gracious Heavenly Father, who loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world, shed abroad His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. So now last time we left off under the heading, Jesus, the greater son of David, is better than the angels. That's the argument. Now he's going to take that argument and set it firmly upon the foundation of God's word. He's announced what the issue is. Now he's going to show it. Verse 4 says of Christ, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, last time we considered some of the ways the scripture uses the phrase son of God. <clears throat> we learned that God's word applies the title son of God to Adam, the nation of Israel, individual covenant members, the Davidic kings, angels, etc. Won't go back through all of that, but we went directly to the scriptures to see that that's the case. But those different senses are important. There is a different sense in which these uh, are, uh, all of these and the others are addressed as sons of God. <clears throat> they do have one thing in common. The father-son relationship. But the father-son relationship here, as applied to all of these, is creator and creation. They are not sons of God in the sense that the letter to the Hebrews is speaking of Christ. In contrast to that, the letter to the Hebrews does use the term son for Jesus in two different and important ways. First, in eternity before creation, 
He was and always will be God the Son, eternally begotten of the Father, the second person of the Holy Trinity, second in time after creation, the Holy Spirit worked miraculously in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and Mary's son was God's son. Humanity united to eternal deity. So Hebrews uses the word son, son of God, in those two ways. At times, it's clearly his deity. Other times, it's the incarnation, the fact that he is the God-man. We'll see that in chapter 2, set before us very plainly. So, we must learn to distinguish between the Son as deity and the Son as the God-man while we're reading through Hebrews, so that we don't become confused. And at the enthronement of the resurrected and ascended God-man, God declared to all the heavenly host, Jesus is Son. This is why he's better than the angels. But at the same time, we don't understand the argumentation until we begin to recognize first his person and then his work and why he is described as he is from the Old Covenant. So, God declared after Jesus ascended that he was Son. We summarized all of that starting in eternity last time and moving through the history of Christ's life. He's always been the Son But when God says in Hebrews, he is son, and then backs it up with scripture, he's pointing to the successful savior, the the son of God that accomplished the father's earthly mission. So, The second person of the Trinity was Son in eternity. That was declared, he was declared Son on earth and then declared Son after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and sat down at the Father's right hand. That's the context. In that sense, The God-man who has accomplished the Father's task, in that sense, Jesus the God-man who was once lower than the angels became better than the angels by his more excellent name, Son. The author of Hebrews then begins to use the scriptures to prove that Christ's name is more excellent than the angels. And this is where it starts to get a little challenging in the book. But he uses scripture all the way through. So there are uh, a few mountains to climb over. 
while angel, or better still, there's some mountains to climb to, to get to the beauty of the top. So while angels are called the sons of God in the sense that God created them, Scripture never records that he addressed any angel as son as he did declare of Jesus. Let me repeat that. I hope this is clear. <clears throat> We're talking about the ways, the senses that the scriptures use, particular words, portions, passages. And <clears throat> we have Son of God before us as we did last week. For those of you that were not here, I hope there are not too many blanks. Um, if you did not hear it, perhaps it would be helpful to uh, get a copy and listen to it. <clears throat> so the author of Hebrews begins to use the scripture to prove that Christ's name is more excellent than the angel's. Remember last week, we, we used a word that many of us are not familiar with. It's the word inclusio. It is a literary device that uh, is found throughout the Bible, actually. But there are, it was something used in their day. And <clears throat> the, the idea of the inclusio, of course, you hear our word inclusion in that, is brackets, as I said last week. It's brackets. In other words, <clears throat> there is a, pur a purposeful use of something that is repeated or is at least so similar that it's very close to repetition. And what's the use of that? Uh, we also use the term bookends. All right. So in the bookends, well, why are they in the scripture? Well, you see them right here. If you look at verse 5. He says, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son. It's the for unto which of the angels said he at any time. You get to the bottom of the chapter, verse 13. But to which of the angels said he at any time? Right? Repetition. Why? Those are the brackets. What are the brackets for? They are telling you that all the content between those repetitions are the heart and soul are the most important thing about the argument. It says, this is it. You want to know where it lies? Look, right here. So, we're, we're going to begin looking right there. It is full of Christ, and that should delight God's people. So, here... The inclusio begins with, under which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, if you just lift those out of their context here and where they appear in the Old Testament, you would have no idea why this would be an argument. Why is this an argument? Well, he's compiling these things so that we will see why. <clears throat> the author of Hebrews is using uh, portions of Scripture and uh, very small and then some extended portions of Scripture to show that Christ is better. <clears throat> so he begins with a, that challenge in verse 5. 
It's a challenge to the reader. For unto which of the angels said he at any time? He's not talking up into the air. He wants those that are hearing him to say, okay, do I know enough about angels here in the scriptures to know why he did that? Or did he ever do that? Well, he never did. Unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That's very specifically said in Psalm 2. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7.14 Now, while angels are called sons of God in the sense, and, and that's a phrase we'll be using a lot during Hebrews as we work through here, in the sense, Because a certain point is being made in a certain context that doesn't apply, apply equally, equally to everything around it. We have to understand its context and why it's being said. So why does he say, well, when did he ever say that to any of the angels? That's the first part of the argument. <clears throat> he never said this to any angel. Therefore, Christ is better. How do you get that? Because... The one speaking is God. There's none higher than God. If God says, this is my son, in the way he's using it, it's never been spoken to anybody else. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. <clears throat> now, to make the point, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 2-7 I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, as we saw last time, the author has great knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. Secondly, the author uses his knowledge of scripture and his knowledge of Christ in the scriptures to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what he's doing. Now, we looked very briefly at Psalm 2 last week, and we do not have time to go back to it today. I would love to do so for the benefit of those that were not here. But we looked at Psalm 2. A very important psalm. Last time we briefly surveyed, it was a very brief survey of Psalm 2 in its historical context. So that we might understand the spiritual and Christological sense and application. Don't want to lose you with those words. Think with me there just for a few moments. We looked at Psalm 2. First of all, it's a historical document. It is a historical psalm. It was written in history, and it embodied history then. It was speaking to God's people then. Now, the same is true as we press on. The Holy Spirit guided the author of Hebrews to apply 
Hebrews 2, 7, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We learned that Psalm 2 was probably a coronation psalm. In other words, coronation, children, is when a brand new king is crowned. It's, it's a big deal in places where they have kings. Uh, if anybody was following the news at all a while back, uh, when England was uh, installing their new king. It was in the news for days. The pomp was uh, unbelievable. The expense and the wealth and the celebrations were eye-popping. Coronations are important. We don't generally have them. The closest thing we have uh, is when a president is sworn in. That's about the closest we can get to it. Um, then some of them go act like kings, even though they were not given a crown. <clears throat> Now, what we want to see here is a, a psalm that rejoices in and exalts a son who is made king. We saw that last week, so I, can, I will not pursue it this morning. <clears throat> but all of that can be applied to what was happening in Israel at that time, uh, there are those who think that it was actually uh, repeated or even sung every time that a king from the, the family of David was uh, crowned king. So the, what we have here is a remarkable moment. One thing about the psalm, there was a promise there was a promise of the ends of the earth. That didn't happen to any of the Davidic kings with which the people were familiar. They were not, they saw him conquer. They had the great David as their conqueror, as the conquering hero. And he went out and he took out Nations brought them under his control. They didn't hate it. They rebelled against him. All of that is there in Psalm 2. But what happens is that the promises that God made to the Son, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. That hadn't happened yet. And that left the Lord's people wondering. It left the Lord's people Longing for when's the king that's going to conquer everything come, which is exactly what it was intended to do, to stir the people to look toward the future and to look for that king on God's holy hill. <clears throat> David and his sons all sat there, but not one of them conquered the world. So, the coronation of a new king could be a joyful and a, and a holy time, a holy celebration. And uh, this is one of the reasons Psalm 2 is called a royal psalm, because it speaks of God's king ruling in Jerusalem, the city of David. <clears throat> Yet to understand this even better, we need to consider the next passage that the author quotes. God covenanted with David that his throne would last forever. God covenanted with David that his throne would last forever. 
and his kingdom would last forever. That, of course, that's saying the same thing. If your throne lasts forever, it means your kingdom, your rule lasts forever. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 quotes 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. In Psalm 2, thou art my son, is said by God. So this is God's son. We need to understand that the Davidic kings are are extremely important in the unfolding of God's eternal purpose in Christ. What you have is a remarkable, a truly remarkable prophecy set before David that left people at the same, uh, in the same way that Psalm 2 did, longing for a king, longing for a king. So, <clears throat> I will be his father, he shall be my son. God says that in 2 Samuel seven fourteen. So, each king, each Davidic king was a son of God because he was ruling God's people in God's kingdom according, or at least they were to do it according to the laws of God. They were God's representatives. So in that sense, they were God's sons. They were not deity. So God purposed that David would be the king of his people. The Bible describes God as the sovereign king over all things. Let's, let's begin at the, at the bottom level, or maybe I should say at the very highest level. God has always been king. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has always been the king because he's the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. The, the Bible describes him as the sovereign over all things, all people. Psalm 115, Psalm 115, verse 3, declares, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. Ephesians 1.11, likewise declares that God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. After God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, that man said, Mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the most high, no one higher than the most high. I blessed the most high and I praised and honored him that liveth forever. This is a pagan. Whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He knew that personally. <clears throat> They're reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to all his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Now, unfortunately, on those days when our flesh gets the, other hand, uh, the upper hand on us, uh, we're sinful enough to say, oh, so what are you doing? It's not okay. 
if we believe that he is the sovereign. If we sing, whate'er my God ordains is right, then why do we question him? I'm guilty. I would guess some of you are as well. It's wonderful when everything seems to be going beautifully with your work or with your children or your marriage or all things at the church, whatever. It's very, ha- it's wonderful. It's easy to go, oh, God is sovereign. And then he does something sovereign. And then we go, oh, wait, wait. Now I could get, if you did this to me, I'd be okay with that. And if you'd done that to me, I could, I could deal with that. But why did you do this? All right, well, that's, that's the wrong question. It's like, you have sent it to me. Help me to honor thee as I try to work through this. Be with me at every step of this. Help me. David cries out to God for help all the time. Read those Psalms. So, this pagan learned from the very hand of the sovereign God himself that he rules rules over everything and everybody because he's God and there is none else. So, the great God of the Bible was always king. No one made him king. No one will ever pull him away or pull him out of his throne He is the king. I say that because Karl Marx challenged. He said, if I could, I would would climb up to heaven and I would pull God off of his throne. Well, he's in hell. And tragically, his followers will be too. Because they often reject God in the same way. We should pray for them. Because they hate the one king. So, The great Bible, the great God of the Bible was always and is always and will be always king of the universe from eternity before creation to eternity after he brings in the new heaven and the new earth. So we can say on one hand that David was a king before creation. How? In the mind and purpose of God. If he is the sovereign over all things, David didn't just pop up on the landscape. He was God's chosen king. It's quite possible that that's the anointed spoken of in Psalm 2. At the historic level, it is Christ at the spiritual level. So let's ask a question. When was David anointed king? When? Samuel anointed David king during during the failed reign of Saul. Saul was the first king. The people wanted a king. We've got to have a king like the nations. And they rejected the living God. God said, I'll give you a king. And he was another failure. His dynasty died with him. He was the first generation king, first king of Israel and His sons died with him in the day that he died. His his throne didn't go on. Samuel anointed David during the failed reign of Saul. 
After God rejected Saul, God sent Samuel to Jesse the Bethlehemite. As each of Jesse's sons passed before Samuel, Jesse, each one of them passed, and and Samuel was going, "Um, not him, not him, not him. Went through seven. He said, do you have any more? Well, we got one, but he's, he's, he's the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. Samuel says, we'll wait. Go get him. Now, remember, bear in mind, Saul is king. He's been anointed by Samuel early, earlier in 1 Samuel. After the people have rejected God, Saul is anointed. And he is the king on his throne. But now, Samuel calls for that young boy. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. God says it. This is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. Oh, is that important? The youngest one, the one that that people would overlook in that culture, is anointed in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forth. The next passage says, and the Spirit was taken away from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. It was why he was a man after God's own heart, and it's why he was a prophet, and why so many of his words speak prophetically of his greater son, Jesus the Christ. So when did David begin to rule? Now, this is what I want us to get, all right? When was he anointed? He was probably 10 to 15 years old. Somewhere in in that age range. Of course, if you look through history, both in in the scriptures and uh, in various countries, England being another good example, a lot of times children were appointed king because they were the ones that were the heirs. All right. Well, what we have here is that David's anointed while another king is reigning, but the Lord leaves that king. David is the king between 10 and 15 years old. So when did David begin to rule? Not that day. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, David was, listen carefully, 30 years old when he began to reign. When he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 30 and, 30, uh, 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. Here's the point that I want to drive home. David was officially the anointed king when he was between 10 and 15 years old, but it was a very long journey, a very long time, before he exercised his rule. Now that's what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important because God promised a king. And he promised a king 
with certain abilities and gifts and powers and all of those things. And everyone was waiting for him. But when Jesus came into this world, the king, like Saul, started looking for him so he could kill him, just like he chased David. David's life is something of a biblical blueprint pointing forward, pointing to our Lord. That's why we can call the Son, Son, before the foundation of the world. Son, when he's in the virgin's womb. Son, when he is baptized. Son, at the Mount of Transfiguration. Son, when he is resurrected. And then God says, Son, when he sits on the throne. As David had to go through a great deal before he began his great reign, so did Christ. And when he rose from the, from the grave and ascended into glory and sat down at the Father's right hand, God calls him son like the son of Psalm 2. Thou art my son this day. I have begotten thee. I have become your father that's the idea. It's the father-son relationship being talked about right there. So the father and the son are united in glory when Christ sits down at the father's right hand. Now let's go, let's go back to 2 Samuel for a few moments to add a little bit more to this trip. King David wanted to build God a house. He finally began ruling and reigning in earthly Jerusalem, earthly Zion. But Hebrews tells us that there is a spiritual Jerusalem. There is a spiritual Zion. That's the throne Christ is presently sitting on. God surprised David with the words of Nathan the prophet, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. It says, And when thy days be fulfilled, now God is speaking through Nathan to David, When thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set thee up, I will set up thy seed after thee. <clears throat> so he's going to have descendants. And they're going to be a part of a dynasty that God has set up for him, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. They will truly be your own sons. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. And this is the, this is the quote. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the, with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. 
David was overwhelmed. He was utterly overwhelmed. Let us listen intently to his prayer that followed. After God made this promise, Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord? Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as thou hast said. We get the picture. Don't lose it in the King James English. He's saying, look, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve any of this. But do what you promised. Keep the kingdom going. Keep the kingdom going. That's just something that's hard for him to believe. Here's David, and he's looking into the future. God has just promised him a string of sons. They're going to come from you. But if we read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, only a few of them deserve any praise. The rest of them are uh, extraordinary failures. They were still called sons of God, all right, because they were God's representatives. Why does this matter? Because God answered David's prayer. Think with me for just a minute. When God says, I'm going to give you this long family line. And then we find, as we do in the, uh, the, the scriptures, in the prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, <clears throat> the kings are all pulled off their throne. They're dragged into captivity or killed. <clears throat> Where's that king that's going to get the whole world? Why are our enemies destroying us instead of us conquering them? Well, that's why he sent the prophets. They were constantly reminding them, you broke the covenant. You were unfaithful to the covenant. If you don't keep the covenant, you will be dragged out of the land. And that's exactly what happened. They come back, they rebuild the temple. And people weep because the new temple doesn't even compare to the old temple. What happened? Where are the promises of God? He promised David. Well, think with me for just a moment. We've just elected a new speaker of the house. Now, suppose... The Speaker of the House, it was the day when they gave him the gavel and he pounded it for the first time. Suppose Speaker of the House was an office that went from generation to generation out of the same family. All right, there's, there's only three ways that he could keep that gavel forever. All right, first one is he lives forever. He doesn't die. Well, don't hold your breath. That's not going to happen. We all die. Well, then that means we have, uh, he has a son and his son has a son and his son has a son and his son and son and it just keeps going and it goes forever. He just forever has children. History doesn't work like that, does it? 
But that would be the only way. Those are the first two ways that you could do it. The only other way would be if one of those sons lived forever. Is that right? Then the gavel would always be his. The scepter of righteousness that Jesus Christ holds is his forever because he lives forever. He is the son that actually answers the promises that God gave. He is the one that is sitting on Zion's hill and he is ruling. Now, let me, let me say this. Even, even if you hold to Christ not sitting in Zion un, until a Jewish millennium, even, even if that's your view, the argument doesn't change. That's very important. The argument doesn't change. The issue is there's only one son that lives forever, Jesus Christ. You know, he is the son of David. He is the son. When, when David sat down and heard this astounding promise from God, he just said, do what you said. He did. That's why Matthew's gospel begins. You know, this is the genealogy of Jesus the son of David. It isn't just a long list of names. It is the fact that he is the Christ. When Psalm 2 says the king has put his anointed on the throne, whatever time frame you put that in, God still put the, uh, that, that crown upon him. And he's living forever. He will never lose his crown. He will never. He is the one that fulfills what God says in Psalm two, and in Second Samuel. And you say, well, you know, that this is kind of complex. Yeah, that's the way the Bible is. That's why the Lord wants us to get down before it and say, you know, I don't know as nearly as much about this as I thought I did. This is why He can bring these passages together. Because while they are historical documents that, that all have to do with certain things within a time frame, they also have a spiritual aspect to them. Jesus is the one that perfectly answers both of those passages. So when he sat down at the Father's right hand, God said, this is my son. This is the son that will reign forever well we want to come to an end here with this today we can certainly say when David ended his prayer he said therefore now let it please thee God to bless the house of thy servant David that it may continue forever before thee for thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. That prayer was answered when his descendant Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into glory, and sat down on the right hand of the Father. He is the Son. He is the Son who is now reigning as it took David a long time to get to that. He was the king all along while Jesus walked on the earth. 
He was the king all along. How could you say that? He was anointed in the Jordan River. He was anointed with the Holy Ghost coming down upon him with power. That's You see, when you go down to the Jordan River and stand on the bank and see that man out there being uh, immersed by John the Baptist and then the, the dove of heaven comes down upon him, you are seeing the Christ, the anointed. All of the anointeds in the old in the Old Testament pointed to him. They pointed to him. They stamped in the Jews' corporate minds, anointing for prophets, for priests, for kings. When Jesus was in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was the king, but he wasn't reigning yet. As the God-man, that's why we have to make the distinctions. As the God-man, he wasn't reigning yet. He was the king as he manifested his miracles and started adding souls to his kingdom. But he wasn't ruling yet. And then his his family, his enemies, many people mocked him, rejected him, would have nothing to do. What kind of king was he? Where was his army? Twelve guys that walked around? Where was his army? He was still a king. He was the king waiting for that moment. And as he was dragged before his enemies, they mocked him, they spat upon him, they beat him. Are you the king? You just said it. He never denied it. In that tragedy, we're outside the city walls, up over his head. This is king of the Jews. Well, to the world, he didn't look like a king. But there is our king upon the cross. And when he rose from the dead and when he ascended up into glory and when he sat down, the father said, this is my son. Now, as with David, once he conquered Jerusalem, he went in and began to reign. Jesus entered into heavenly Jerusalem entered into the glory and presence of his father and sat down at his father's right hand. And the Lord God, his father, said, this is my son. This is my son. I will be a father to him. He shall be a son to me. The God man is reigning now and the day is coming. However, your eschatology works out. Christ and his glory will reign upon this earth. The new heavens and the new earth. Heaven will be this extraordinary merger. After he burns up the old world, the old creation, and makes the new, he and his father are the light there. Where do you see him when you read the book of Revelation? Where do you see him? He's either sitting at the Father's right hand or he's sitting in the Father's throne. The Father isn't going out of my chair. No. His, he's the, the, the image of a lamb sitting in his chair, in his throne, is saying, 
The Son is God. He is to be bowed to. He is to be glorified. He is the Son of God. And by that very relation, it speaks of his deity. More of that later on. Well, well, brethren, when you see the, the uh, lamb in, in glory, when you see him in the book of Revelation, I wanted to spend time there today. We're out of time. What do you see? You see them all magnifying him and his father. Him and his father. <clears throat> Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain. How can God be slain? He's the God-man. For thou wast slain. Praise the Lord. And has redeemed us unto God by thy blood. God in his nature, his spirit, had no blood. But the God-man had blood. And he shed it for us. Brethren, sitting in glory, whenever the Father sends him on his return, it will be that great and glorious one promised to David. While the Lord's people wrestle back and forth with their understanding of that return, of their eschatology, what's clear is that the, the writer of Hebrews has just announced that after Christ purged us from our sins, he sat down at the Father's right hand. That's the highest place in existence. He is ruling from there. God the Father is ruling through his Son. He is our mediator as prophet, priest, and king. And it will be the aspect of priest that he will focus on that the writer of Hebrews will focus on the most <clears throat> may God help us I will mention these applications and leave them let us learn from these passages the faithfulness of God when everyone looked around and couldn't see a, a king that seemed to fit the bill of the prophecies in his time God sent Jesus into this world he's faithful Jesus, the Son, governs the universe from the throne from heaven. And that should encourage and strengthen every one of us in every aspect of our lives. The Almighty Son is my advocate, is my friend, is my helper, is my shepherd. And finally, the Jesus, Jesus, the Son, is therefore worthy of our highest worship, our most intense love, and our most loving obedience. Christ the King. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days. Is that not food for the soul? Well, brethren, there's much behind those two simple statements. It spans the scriptures. Those two portions of Scripture taken out and applied to say that Jesus is better than the angels, when you understand them, proves it. He is Christ, the Son of God, Christ the King. Not true of any angel at any time.
Amen. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the grace that thou dost show us every single day. And I pray, O God, that thou wouldst pour out thy mighty spirit here in this place. These are challenging passages that thou dost set before us. Very often we don't understand the reason that they are there. But as we look and as we pray and as thou dost unfold the glorious treasures of thy word, our hearts are kindled to see how the, 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 the various parts of Scripture interlock and they come together in the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. Brethren, we are going to have our baptism now. <clears throat> I'm going to encourage all of you to pray for the one who will be baptized. Uh, we are going to change, then we will enter into the baptismal pool. May the Lord bless our baptism followed by the Lord's Supper. Let's stretch our legs in the name of the Lord Jesus.